This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Each year, approximately one billion people travel by air, and it's been predicted that in the coming two decades, the number of passengers will double. An increase in travel, as well as an aging population, makes it likely that there'll be a significant increase in older passengers and many with chronic illness. Patients frequently ask us whether it's advisable for them to travel, and if so, what precautions they should take. To address the topic of air travel safety, we have with us today Dr. Clay Call, an internist, pulmonologist, and chair of the Division of Preventive Occupational and Aerospace Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Clay, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Daryl. I suspect most of our patients who fly think it's no different than taking a train or a bus, but there, there really is some difference, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people don't think about some of the physiologic um, uh, challenges that are out there. I mean, when we get in a uh, commercial plane, uh, people don't take into account the fact that it's pressurized. You know, we go to uh, essentially challenging environments, 40,000 feet where it's extremely cold outside, there's radiation outside, and, and people don't really think about that. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, a lot of reasons why we in the medical community need to think about our patients that are going on these trips. And a lot of them have the wherewithal and means to get all over the globe nowadays. Yeah. What medical conditions should we be concerned about in our patients? Well, you know, for the, uh, the average traveler, there's not a, a whole lot that, that we have to think about. Most, for most people... There's not going to be a lot of things that we have to do any different uh, than anyone else. But the people that we really need to focus on are those with cardiopulmonary illness and um, and other special situations that we can talk about. Uh, things like uh, women in the third trimester of pregnancy, um, individuals with uh, specific um, conditions like um, uh, certain infectious conditions or those with, uh, for for example, uh, mental health-related uh, problems. All right. Well, let's start with those who have uh, cardiac or pulmonary disease. What kind of a pre-flight assessment should primary health care providers uh, be performing in these individuals? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one tool that we all have in our armamentarium as we're talking to our patients is that of the history. And so a lot of us forget to actually ask people about um, gee, I, you know, summer's coming up. Are you taking any trips? And a lot of times we'll be surprised at where some people are, are, are planning to travel. And I think if that comes up, it's really incumbent upon us to, to put it on their radar screen, so to speak, uh, that, gee, they're, they're, you need to be thinking about certain things. And so, you know, the, we have to be thinking about what are, what are going to be the effects of mild hypoxia or decreased air pressure in the cabin. And as you know, Daryl, uh, when we go to altitude, um, the the atmospheric pressure decreases. Um, the fraction of oxygen remains the same. But when we go to, say, 40,000 feet, rather than, I think all of us remember our, our arterial 
uh, alveolar gas equations where everything was, you know, uh, the barometric pressure was always 760 millimeters of mercury. Uh, well, when we go to altitude, that becomes much, much less. And so the driving force inside the alveolus is less. Even with a pressurized cabin, it's the equivalent of standing on an 8,000-foot mountain, approximately. So and, these cabins aren't 100% pressurized, well, are they? Uh, of course not. And, uh, you know, and for many airlines, look at how, how, what's the least amount of pressure we can get away with uh, because it costs more fuel consumption. And so that obviously saves money to not have to pressurize as much. Um, and so we need to think about mild hypoxia and decreased air pressure in the cabin. We need to think about the effects of immobility, um, uh, the ability for people that are on regular medications to be able to take those when they need to take them, especially those with things such as uh, a seizure disorder or insulin-dependent diabetes. And you know the ability of the patient to cope mentally with being in a confined environment for a prolonged period of time. And there are, uh, unfortunately, tragic situations where individuals with mental health issues uh, haven't been able to adopt, and there really wasn't any uh, uh, plan in place prior to just putting them on the aircraft. And then, you know, and then ultimately, as we are advocates for our patients to think about things like, gee, do you have uh, travel insurance? Do you have a way if you had a medical uh, condition abroad somewhere? Do you have the ability to get back, uh, uh, to be repatriated, so to speak, uh, for those conditions? How about the humidity in the cabins? Was that reduced as well as the air pressure? Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you're taking cold, dry air from the outside and essentially heating it and recirculating it through the cabin. Um, although the air is filtered, it then becomes much drier than what we're used to in, in our normal, you know, especially in the summer now, hum, humid conditions. And so what that can create is, um, you know, for, for those with sinus conditions, for example, um, it, it can cause uh, uh, significant uh, dehydration effects. And you add that with things like a little extra caffeine, uh, failure to drink enough, you know, prior to being on the flight, you know, rushing to get to a flight, you know, the gate always being at the end of the terminal, uh, rushing to get there and those types of things. And, and you can get fairly dehydrated. And that's why you see airlines, you know, sometimes providing extra water um, because uh, to try to avoid some of those effects. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take some specific examples. Let's say you have a patient who's coming in to see you who has known coronary disease and maybe some stable angina. How do we determine if they are safe to travel? Well, there are you know specific uh, guidelines out there of you know who actually needs to have some sort of uh, pre-flight assessment, and so. Um, Publications are out there from, for example, the Aerospace Medical Association, the British Thoracic Association, American College of Chest Physicians, and others that provide some general guidelines out there. Um, in general, um, those with significant cardiovascular disease really should uh, either avoid or, or, or have very clear pre-flight testing that goes on. So, for example, obviously, if you have a need for oxygen at at baseline, uh, on sea level, you're going to need it at altitude. And uh, even some of those, you know, where some people fall through the cracks is those that uh, have, they don't need supplemental oxygen, but when they go to altitude, they actually do need supplemental oxygen. Others that need, uh, you know, specific assessment are those with heart failure, in particular those with New York Heart Association class three or four heart failure really should to 
take care and maybe would consider not even flying because of some of the stresses that go on. Active angina, uh, those patients should avoid flying. And then general guidelines are if you have an uncomplicated MI, uh, within seven days of that, uh, you probably shouldn't fly. Or if you have a complicated MI uh, defined by some additional heart failure with that, you should wait at least four to six weeks uh, after flying. Okay. How about those with pulmonary disease? And I'm thinking mostly uh, COPD. Yeah, you know, the, I think it goes back to the idea that for those with COPD that, who are hypoxemic, uh, they, number one is they need to make sure that they take their medications as they are doing regularly. And sometimes with these schedules and time zone changes and that, if you're flying overseas, for example, that can get um, uh, a bit topsy-turvy. Um, I think uh, if you aren't on oxygen, it would be important to have something like a high-altitude simulation test if you're kind of on the borderline of needing supplemental oxygen, or even a general oxygen titration test where a patient is measured at rest and then with some light exercise to see what happens. Um, there are many uh, medical centers that have a high-altitude simulation test where they either use a, a nitrogen-oxygen uh, paradigm mix uh, or uh, uh, decrease the fraction of oxygen to simulate what it would be at altitude to determine if they need it. Mm -hmm. The good news is, is there are companies available now where you can actually rent portable oxygen concentrators for, say, a week or two at a time uh, where um, it becomes affordable, and then a lot of these companies will ship with it um, a, a, um, an oximetry unit instructions, including a telephone call with a respiratory therapist, and the ability to send it back in an overnight mail uh, container when they get back. So airlines allow patients to carry on their own concentrators? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of changes, Daryl, in the last couple of years, and it's gone from where you could only have six or eight different specific units approved to now pretty much um, I think there's over 20 different portable oxygen concentrators that are now allowed. Um, there is not a required note from a healthcare professional um, that was uh, eliminated with the last uh, federal aviation regulation changes uh, that uh, became affected in, effective in late 2016. Um, and now pretty much anyone that has a, an actual stamp on it that says it's approved for air flight use, which all the manufacturers uh, pretty much use at this point, um, uh, they can bring it on board without any special uh, uh, permission from the airlines. What about the patient who doesn't have a concentrator but uses a uh, oxygen tank? Those aren't allowed to be brought on board, are they? Yeah, that's correct. Um, in special circumstances, the airlines can preset having uh, essentially a medical oxygen on board the aircraft. Uh, for them, it's very expensive, and most airlines are actually only allowing portable oxygen concentrators, um, or they're saying, gee, we really don't want to fly you if you require such high flow that you actually need tank oxygen. Most portable oxygen concentrators can deliver the needs for most of the patients that are still functionally able to fly in terms of you know, getting down the terminals and uh, you know, being able to access seats and that type of thing. Um, you know, those with high flow needs, uh, you know, sometimes really need to uh, really reconsider flying. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like as a minimum, patients really need to work ahead of time before their flight to make sure all of this is in place. Yeah, absolutely. I think it takes a lot of foresight if they are going in particularly overseas or on multiple different airlines. When I say that, 
Um, most people don't understand some of the commuter airlines, even though they, they have the same brand on it, maybe a completely different owned company um, than, than the primary airline that they're flying. Um, or they may fly one airline, their primary airline, to, say, Europe, and then to get to the next city they want to go to is actually a different airline. So there are different rules and different rules on each continent as well. But they've tried to standardize those as much as possible. This episode is sponsored in part by Giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B, an on-demand library of medical talks covering the most important and advanced topics trending in primary and specialty care. Subscribe now to learn from subject matter experts from Mayo Clinic's top conferences. Subscribers to Giblib receive unlimited access to new exclusive content released every week. Learn more by visiting giblib.com slash mailclinic and use promo code MAYOTALKS to receive one month of free access. That's giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B dot com slash mailclinic. So is it fair to say that with the reduced air pressurization in the cabin that if a patient is going to be flying, you would just basically assume uh, what would they need at about eight to 9,000 feet? Is that about the equivalent of the uh, cabin pressure? Yeah, uh, I think that's generally true. I mean, uh, the one thing I would point out to our listeners is that um, on the portable oxygen concentrators, just because it says one, two, or three on it does not necess- necessarily mean that that is one liter, two liter, or three liters per minute of supplemental oxygen flow. That's just a dot, essentially, that the manufacturer put on there that says one, two, or three. And so it's important that they actually try the, the portable oxygen concentrator on and either with the manufacturer or in the physician or other healthcare provider's offices uh, should make sure of exactly how much that POC is, is delivering to mm-hmm. the patient. You mentioned that airlines may refuse a patient travel if they need a certain amount of airflow. Are there other health reasons where an airline might uh, refuse an individual to fly? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, things that you have to consider, uh, it's not uncommon for uh, uh, women in their third trimester of pregnancy to want to fly. Typically, the recommendation is, is, is no flying after about the 37th week or if they are expecting twins after about the 32nd week. Um, if if a, uh, a pregnant woman does plan to fly, the recommendation is is that they have a uh, some sort of documentation from their healthcare provider um, of you know that the pregnancy is going well, that there's no complications, and that. So most airlines are asking for some documentation in that regard, and it's important to remind uh, any patients that you see who are pregnant uh, about the potential risks. Um, there's very small, uh, probably negligible risk of ionizing radiation, uh, but just the general, you know, the movement, the, the uh, hypoxia, uh, albeit um, minimal at altitude, um, are certainly things that a woman needs to consider. Yeah. It sounds like a good policy. As, as, as a geriatrician, the last thing I would want to do is help deliver a baby. At, uh, well, and I can tell you, our, our, I, I've had multiple stories of colleagues who have delivered babies uh, on flights. It's, it's you know, I, we always say, you know, it's the, 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 the greatest medical kit in the air is not going to substitute for being on the ground. So. Right, right. How about recent surgeries? How do they impact flying? 
Yeah, and it's again going back to the guidelines. You know, it, it's really not recommended that for say an open abdominal surgery that you fly within a ten day window after that. Um, for things like colonoscopy, which is not uncommon to get a colonoscopy, especially from our institution here, and then fly to some other place across the country or even the world to wait at least 24 hours afterwards. And the reason is, is uh, I'm, most of our listeners re, uh, uh, remember back in either medical school or at, at a minimum in college about Boyle's Law, where gas expands as you go to altitude. And as you go to about 40,000 feet, gas expands to five times what it is at sea level. So if you have a fair amount of gas sitting in the bowels still, when you get to altitude, uh, I don't, you know, you don't have to be a physiologist to know that it may not be the most comfortable thing. And and we've had episodes. Uh, reports of, of, of actual bowel perforations uh, uh, by flying within that 24-hour window. And if nothing else, I'm sure that patient with my luck would be the one sitting next to me. Of course. And, of course. Uh, and, and just some of the other things that are, are you know, reported and, and can be common um, uh, are, are things like venous thromboembolism. Uh, we always worry about that. And in particular, uh, patients who um, you know, are fresh out of surgery that may be a slightly bit more hypercoagulable than the average bear, so to speak, um, I have a risk for, 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 for DVT. Uh, things like uh, um, obesity, age greater than 40, uh, flying for longer than four hours uh, in a flight are all risk factors that, that we really should be counseling our patients about in regards to flying. So what can the average patient do to reduce their risk of uh, venous thromboembolism? Yeah, I think it's simple things. Um, so, you know, the, the question always comes up, gee, do we need to give our patient uh, some sort of uh, a pharmacologic prophylaxis? And the answer is, in all the guidelines out there, is really no. Um, so certainly simple things like um, staying adequately hydrated. Um, for every one to two hours of flight, just getting up and moving about a little bit, you know, maybe either either using the restroom or just standing and just stretching by your seat, uh, 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 especially on these longer flights, more than four hours. Um, uh, things like not crossing your legs for prolonged periods of time, um, avoiding alcohol or caffeine that will intracellularly dehydrate you. Um, simple things like that. And, you know, the risk is relatively low. It's estimated that uh, in a general population, one in 6,000 have a risk for, for some sort of thromboembolic event. Um, but it's uh, in those in higher risk groups, um, it's more like one in 1,000. Mm -hmm. How about pacemakers or internal automatic defibrillators? Are there any issues with those patients going through security in the um metal detection? Yeah, no, great question. Um, it comes up all the time. Uh, and the answer, the short answer is no. And uh, the one thing that uh, that providers should counsel their patients on is um, on rare occasions when, when it will set off the actual metal detector, uh, the, the sort of detection wands that we're all familiar with that TSA uses do have uh, magnets in them and sometimes can, you know, turn off the unit temporarily, which obviously can be a problem if they're pacemaker uh, dependent. Uh, but in general, the units that you see where the uh, passenger has to raise their hand uh, uh, above their torso, those are based on scatter radiation technology. So the radiation actually does not penetrate the skin. It actually hits and bounces back. And so they see sort of a, um, for lack of a better term, a pixelated-like version, a spot version of of a human figure with, uh, you know, if people are used to looking at, say, PET scans, where areas will light up 
around the scattergram uh, that that are suspicious and or may have metal or other dense materials uh, with them. So in general, that should not affect pacemaker or implantable defibrillators. Um, and it's just that they should be careful and make sure to articulate to the TSA agent about that they have a pacemaker or, or, or defibrillator before they start wanding them at all. Finally, one last question that I get a lot of patients asking me about, and that is, is the air in the cabin completely fresh? Is it completely recirculated? And they always feel that every time they fly, they get somebody else's respiratory infection. Yeah, good, good question. Um, so the answer is it's sort of a hybrid. Um, there is fresh air taken in through the actual intake uh, from the engine. It is, of course, heated and put through a, uh, through a filtration system that then is um, recirculated through the cabin. So the answer is they can adjust that pressure in the cabin based on air intake through the, through the engine manifold, and there's a release valve uh, somewhere else in the fuselage. It, it obviously varies with the different types of aircraft. Uh, but the answer is there is recirculating air. And so there have been some studies out there um, where, uh, especially in those with uh, very contagious diseases like, say, um, mycobacterial diseases or, for example, tuberculosis, where individuals within an aircraft have been noted to actually convert uh, based on sitting sitting by them. So, you know, the answer, the, the, the long-winded answer, I guess, is that we should be careful about it and, you know, um, uh, and, uh, and and yes, you, you can get it, but you could get, you can get contagious diseases by standing close to someone in an elevator as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's not just uh, aviation-related environments. Okay, perfect. Well, we've been discussing health conditions and flying with Dr. Clay Call, a pulmonologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Clay, thanks for sharing your knowledge with us today. Yeah, great to be here, Daryl. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks. You can now access and listen to over 100 different podcasts covering a variety of medical topics pertinent to the primary care provider. You can hear us at ce.mayo.edu, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music